Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Unity, Not Uniformity. Amen. Well, while Paul, as we learned last week, was on his second missionary journey around the year A.D. 51, he traveled to the city of Corinth there in Greece, and he was there to plant a church. He had a burning desire to plant a church. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that Corinth was a morally corrupt city and that the Corinthians had this reputation all around the Roman Empire as being the party animals. Corinth was a sleazy seaport city. But that didn't deter Paul one bit from going there to plant a church. Now here's why. It's because Paul knew better than anybody that, do you remember this? God loves how many people? Everyone. Everybody say everyone. God loves everyone, even immoral people living in Corinth in the first century AD. And so he sent Paul there because Corinth was a city in need of a savior. The Holy Spirit anointed the apostle Paul and anointed his team. And the result was that many Corinthians turned from their sin and they turned to Christ as their savior and as their Lord. And so the church was born in Corinth and Paul stayed in that city for about a year and a half. Okay, again, he planted the church around AD 51. I want you to fast forward in your minds from the time he started the church, about four years, and we come to the year AD 55. The Apostle Paul is now on his third missionary journey, and he's in the city of Ephesus. He's enjoying a bunch of fruitful years in Ephesus, and it's when he's enjoying that ministry there in Ephesus that he receives either a visit, a personal visit, or a letter, some sort of message from some of the members of the church of Corinth. And so specifically, this message came, and we're going to see this later, from Chloe's household, and it wasn't encouraging at all. You see, after Paul had left Corinth, the church took a turn for the worse. And now, four years after he started the church, the church is dealing with all these problems. The problems included factions and lawsuits and immoral living, unbiblical divorces, personal liberties taken to a selfish extreme, the abuse of spiritual gifts and all kinds of doctrinal error. And so it was bad news coming out of Corinth. Listen to this. Even though the Corinthians there in the church of Corinth, even though they were saved, they weren't really growing that well in their relationship with the Lord. Why? Because the pastors and the elders of that church had allowed carnality to come into the church. So after getting this bad news, Paul decides to send a letter to the church of Corinth. He's going to try to fix what had gone wrong in the church. And we're going to spend weeks and months looking through all these different problems as we make our way through Paul's letter verse by verse. Let's dig in. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle, and actually to be is italicized. It's not there in the original. So Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
through the will of God, and Sosthenes, please underline Sosthenes. We're going to come back to that, to that guy. And Sosthenes, our brother, to the church, ecclesia, the called out ones, the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be what? Saints. By the way, a saint is not a historical figure who did great things for Christ and then he died or she died and then the church later on recognizes that person as a saint, has no biblical foundation at all. What does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that if you've given your life to Christ, you are a saint. All y'all are saints today. Everybody watching on the website, you're a saint today. Everybody listening on podcast, you're a saint. So we go by the Bible. The Bible says we're all saints in Christ Jesus. Look at the end of verse two. With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace. And by the way, it's always that order in all of Paul's letters. Grace comes first, then peace. It's never peace first, then grace. Because if you haven't experienced God's grace, you'll never experience God's peace. Grace is first. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I had you underline Sosthenes. It's very interesting that Paul mentions Sosthenes in the salutation uh, to the church here. And if you remember from last week, okay, when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, what would he do every Saturday? He would go to the local what? Synagogue. He'd go to the local synagogue, and what he would do is he would take their scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, you call it the Old Testament, and from their scriptures, he would prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. And not just the Messiah of the Jews, he's everyone's Messiah. Now, when he was doing that, remember a lot of Jews believed in Christ. They believed in Jesus as the Christ. But some of the Jews did not believe. Among them was a guy named Sosthenes. And so what did Paul do? Paul, if you remember, he shook his garments, right? When he looked at these hardened people that were not just rejecting Jesus, but they were also blaspheming Jesus, he shook his garment and he said, and I quote, your blood be on your own heads, I'm clean. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And Paul moved on. Do you remember that from last week? Well, I didn't tell you the rest of the story. The rest of the story is that Sosthenes became infuriated with Paul. And Sosthenes and some other Jews that didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah took Paul and he, they reported him to the local authorities. They brought Paul to Gallio, the governor of Achaia, and they tried to bring accusations against him. So we're gonna briefly visit Acts 18. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians. Take a left. Go to Acts chapter 18. Let's see the rest of the story. It says in verse 11 that Paul was there in Corinth for a year and six months teaching the word of God, doing exactly what I'm doing here today. He did to the church there. Now verse 12. When Gallio was governor or proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and they brought him to the judgment seat. And they said, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was, bought, was, was about to open his mouth, 
Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But it is a question of words and names and your own law. Look to it yourselves. I do not want to be a judge in such manners. Matters, And he drove them, verse 16, from the judgment seat. In other words, the, the Greek governor um, that was over Achaia, which included Corinth, he's fed up with these Jews and he drives them from the judgment seat. And now other Gentile Greeks see their opportunity to act out on their anti-Semitism, verse 17. And it says, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the Jew, took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat, but Gallio took no notice of these things. Go back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and who? Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes, our brother brother. <laughs> Something happened. Could it be that the Sosthenes who persecuted Paul back in Acts chapter 18, four years later, is now the same Sosthenes who is allied with Paul? And it sure looks that way. That leads you to your first point, if you're taking notes, and that is that, first of all, God chose to forgive Sosthenes, but not just God, but Paul chose to forgive Sosthenes. All right, God chose to forgive Sosthenes. Once again, Paul, Saturday, local Jewish synagogue in Corinth, AD 51. He's preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. A group of hardened Jews say, no way. Among them is Sosthenes. And so Paul shakes his garments. Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. I'm going to the Gentiles. Here's my point. Even though Paul turned away, God did not turn away. You guys see that? Even though Paul shook his garments and said, you're not going to receive my ministry, I'm going to move on, God still loved Sosthenes, and God's continued to draw Sosthenes. And one day during the period between AD 51 and AD 55, Sosthenes came to a saving knowledge that Jesus was his Lord and Christ and Savior. So what does that mean? That means that even though he was hard, God has a way of getting the attention of hard-hearted people. I want you right now to think about that hardened person, maybe that person that you've shared Jesus with again and again, and now you don't share Jesus with that person any, uh, anymore, right, because they just kept rejecting and rejecting, and you've moved on. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Paul shook his garments, he moved on. But the lesson here is to continue to pray when you move on because you may think that person's way too hard to ever come to the Lord. Well, guess what? Sosthenes came to the Lord. And how does God get the attention of hard-hearted people? Sometimes it's through trouble. Maybe God used that beating that Sosthenes got to get his attention. Sometimes it's through tension. Sometimes it's through transition. But just know, when you move on, God does not. God is, his mercies are great. His love is relentless. Continue 
to pray for those who are hard-hearted toward the Lord. Amen? God chose to forgive Sosthenes. Paul chose to forgive Sosthenes. Even though he hurt Paul in the past, even though he said some wrong things against Paul in the past, even though he brought accusations against Paul in the past, Paul's attitude now was, you know what? I'm gonna let bygones be bygones. And you know what, Sosthenes? God forgave you, I'm gonna forgive you, and let's be partners in the gospel. Isn't that what it says in verse one? Sosthenes, our what? Our brother. And so Paul chose to forgive and forget and to move on. And so right now, as uncomfortable as this is on Mother's Day, I want everyone to think about that person in the past who has offended you. Think about that person who said some stuff against you. Now you have a choice. You can hold a grudge or you can forgive. You have a choice. You can be bitter or you can get better. You see, every time, every time you forgive somebody, somebody is set free. And you might say, oh, Pastor Mike, that's right, that's right, amen, I believe that. I'm gonna set that person free, I'm gonna forgive them. I'm not talking about you setting them free. I'm talking about you setting yourself free. As you sit in the prison of unforgiveness and holding grudges and being bitter, just know the only person that you're negatively affecting is yourself. And the lock to the prison door of unforgiveness is on the inside and you have the key. Why don't you choose like the Apostle Paul to say, let bygones be bygones. I forgive you, Sosthenes. Come on, let's be partners in the gospel. God forgave Sosthenes. Paul forgave Sosthenes. And that's the only way we're going to have true unity in the church. Verse 4. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the what? Grace of God. We're going to talk a lot about that here in a minute. We all need grace. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you are enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we go through this letter, verse by verse, we're gonna see the Corinthians had a lot of problems, but hey, before we beat up on them too much, can we stop right here in verses four through seven and show that they didn't, they didn't just have a lot of problems, they had a lot of positive things going on, right? They were enriched by the grace of God, verse five, in all utterance when they talked, in all knowledge when they received the word of God. And they, they had all these spiritual gifts, verse 7, that they were using to minister to one another, even though, yes, they abused them. We'll get to that later. And they were eagerly awaiting for Jesus to come again. So a lot of good things about these people. But verse 8 says, So the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end. Some of you guys need to underline that, you need to highlight it, you need to put some stars around it, maybe some happy faces all the way around it, because here is another promise that you can take to the bank. Jesus will confirm you to the end. 
that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, I want everybody to say the first three words. Go ahead. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So I love verse eight. God promises, if you know Christ, that he's gonna confirm you to the end. Why? Verse nine, because God is faithful. Some of you are still freaked out because you think you can lose your salvation. And you can't get beyond that in your life. You can't get beyond that in your Christian growth. But once again, we see from the scriptures and it's over and over and over again. You say, Pastor Mike, you talk a lot about this subject because when you go through the Bible verse by verse, it's in there a lot. God wants you to move past this. He wants you to take his promises to the bank. Now look at verse eight again. It says that he will confirm you to the end that you may be, what's the word? blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Question, everybody please look at me right now. Question, were the Christians in the church of Corinth blameless, yes or no? Let me try that again. I'm not talking about their position, I'm talking about their practice here, okay? Were the people in the church of Corinth blameless, yes or no? No, they were involved in factions, lawsuits, immoral living, unbiblical divorces, the abuse of spiritual gifts, and doctrinal error. But to the same Corinthians, Paul says, he will confirm you to the end. Why? Verse nine, because God is faithful. Leads you to your next point if you're taking notes. Believers will be blameless on, the day, on, on judgment day, not because they're so faithful, but because the Lord is so faithful. Oh, Pastor Mike, I don't know if I'm good enough to make it to heaven. Join the club. Oh, Pastor Mike, I don't know if I'm, I'm faithful enough to make it to heaven. The question is not how faithful you are. The question is how faithful is Christ? I was listening to an interview this past week of a certain person who wrote a certain book. And this certain person travels around evangelical churches all across America. And wherever this person goes, they always ask the question for the average church member sitting in the pew, what is justification? And this person said the vast majority of times, they get a blank stare. People don't know what justification means. We're talking about Christianity 101. We're talking about the foundation of your faith. We're talking about understanding this, not just in your head, but in your heart, so you can move on and do great things for God. What is justification? Justification is when you turn from your sin to Christ in faith, when you embrace what he did on the cross for you. You believe that he did it for you, he died for you, and he rose again the third day, and you receive him by faith. God says to you, justified. What does that mean? That means he declares you righteous. Everybody say, declares you righteous. Go ahead. So if that person ever comes to this church and asks the average member, what is justification? Don't give them a blank stare. Look at them and smile and say, it means that I'm declared righteous, not because of my righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus did not just die for you. Listen to this. 
He didn't just die as your substitute. He lived as your substitute. He lived the perfect life you could never live. And when you turn to him in faith, he takes that righteous life and he says, I'm putting that in his bank account or her bank account. They're justified by faith. And you know what? Right now on your test, you have a big fat A. There's nothing you can do to ever mess up that A before God. Your okayness with God is not based on what you do. It's based on what Christ has done. Accept that. Walk in that. Love God for that. You have an A. You have an A. Everybody say, I have an A. Do you really believe that or are you just saying it because the preacher told you to say it? You have an A. Nothing could change that because of Christ. Now, from that basis, live for him, love him, serve him, because he's so good for you, to you and to me. Just as if I never sinned. That's what justification means. I'm going to take it one step further and make some of you uncomfortable. It's not just as if I've never sinned. It's just as if I've always obeyed. Nothing will change that. That's your position in Christ. You say, that's not my practice. Not my practice either. But hopefully through the fruit of the Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit, more and more as we grow in the Lord, our practice will begin to match our position. So, hey, you may let God down. Pardon the bad English, God ain't going to never let you down. I really wish you guys believed that with all your hearts. And I wish you lived in that freedom and joy. And you know what? It'll give you freedom, it'll give you joy, and it'll give you surprising faithfulness to the Lord. Because you won't be trying to work it up. You'll just be allowing the Holy Spirit to live in and through you. Look at verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there are no divisions. Underline divisions, please. There are no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. The Corinthian church, big problem. The problem was so toxic, it was hurting them from within. It's hurting their unity. It was hurting their witness from without. The problem was a lack of unity. It was division. What does divisions mean in the Greek? The Greek word is schisma, from which we get our English word schism, and it simply means to rend or tear. So if the church is like a garment, the church at Corinth was like a torn garment. Okay, imagine right now if I were to begin to rip up my brand new shirt that I bought yesterday, half off, TJ Maxx, got a great deal on this shirt, by the way. Imagine if I ripped off the right sleeve and then ripped off the left sleeve and tore, and I just began to rip, 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 and threw it on the ground. Okay, that's a picture of the church at Corinth. Even though they were blameless, 
in their position through faith in Christ, their practice was they were fighting and dividing. You say, what were they dividing over? We're going to see in the weeks ahead, they were dividing over a lot of things. But one of the main things, they were dividing over personalities. Hmm. Look at verse 12. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that's the Aramaic rendering of Peter, or I am of Christ. The believers in Corinth were polarized over certain personalities in the church. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of Christ. So within that local church, you had these factions. They're polarizing over personalities. First of all, you had the, the Paul party. Okay, who was the Apostle Paul? You guys know. One of the greatest scholars the church has ever seen. I mean, this guy in his BC days was mentored personally by the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. He became a rabbi. Paul became a rabbi himself. Then later on, he becomes a Pharisee. And then later on, he meets Jesus face to face, and he throws all that self-righteousness away, and he becomes new in Christ. But what does he do? He knows the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, like the back of his hand. So every Saturday, all throughout his life, he goes to the Jewish synagogue. Why? He always takes the gospel to the Jew first, then to the Greek. He goes to the Jewish synagogue, and from their Hebrew scriptures, he proves to them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Jewish Messiah. Now, you got to have some brains and some ability to get around the scriptures in order to do that. And I don't say this to condemn anybody. I say it to challenge you in love. If you were to sit in front of an unbelieving person who is of Jewish descent, would you be able to show them from their Bible that Jesus is their Messiah? If not, you can learn how to do that. That's what Paul did. And not only that, he wrote most of our New Testament. And not only that, but he started tons of churches all around the Roman Empire, including this church at Corinth. And so people in the Paul party probably emphasize biblical scholarship and you know, the teaching of the word. People in the Paul party would say, you know what, I really like a pastor who knows the word of God and who feeds the flock of God the word of God. They had their own little group. And then you had some people who said, I'm of Apollos. So you had the Apollos party in the church. Apollos was a converted Jew from Alexandria, Egypt. And according to Acts 18, this guy was, quote unquote, fervent in spirit. So this guy was the passionate preacher. Not only that, but he was also a silver-tongued orator. And so this is the guy that would have everybody on the edge of their seat. This is the guy when he preached 45 minutes, it seemed like five minutes. This is the guy when, when he preached, your, your soul would stir. And so people in the Apollos party, they probably emphasized passionate and polished preaching. Then you had the Peter party. So Paul party, Apollos party, you got the Peter party. I'm a Peter, right? So Peter, of course, is the first among the 12 original apostles. Peter was mentored by Jesus himself. Doesn't get any better than that. 
Peter was like Peter, James, and John, the inner three. And, 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 and Peter's the guy that Jesus said, I want you to feed my sheep. I give you the, kings, the keys of the kingdom. You're the rock. Rocky, right? And so Peter, Rocky, with James, was the leader of the mother church in Jerusalem. And so people in the Peter party probably emphasized apostolic authority. And they probably emphasized the fact that Peter's the primary leader of Christianity. He's our man. He walked with Christ. So you had, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. And then you had these people, I'm of Christ. Now, I just want you to know that if I lived in the first century in Corinth, I would be in the Christ party because, quite frankly, I'm more spiritual than you, okay? Just, that was a joke. You guys are all looking at me. Because every commentator, commentary that I read this week, they said that the Christ party were the self-righteous, spiritual elitists in the church. These, this was the guy who would say something like this. You know, the established church is corrupt. And so I'm going to go start my own church in my house. Um, we're not going to listen to man. We only take orders from Christ. This sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? And so we're going to start a church in, our, in, in my house. I'm going to be the pastor. My wife's going to be the assistant pastor. Our children, they're going to be the congregation. We're going to tithe to ourselves because that's really good on the budget. We're not, we don't care about elders. We don't care about pastors. We're only going to follow Jesus. Well, there's a problem with that type of super spiritual thinking, that if you're going to fall into that group, you've got to throw away a lot of the New Testament that teaches the church and teaches the position of elders and pastors and teaches the principle of the tithe, and teaches the local church and how that local church needs to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and impacting their world with the message of Jesus. I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Christ. And Paul says, you are all carnal. Why is that, Paul? Look at verse 13. Here's why. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, and I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ, verse 17, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Paul says, you're all carnal. Why? He says, is Christ divided? Now, Paul could have went on and said this, okay? Because you had in the church the Paul party, all right? So he could have said, am I divine? <laughs> Did I leave my throne in heaven to seek and to save those who are lost? Was I conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin? Did I live a perfect life? Was I crucified for you? Did I rise again the third day? Were you baptized in my name? And of course not. And by the way, the reason Paul didn't baptize a lot of people, we don't understand this today because we think, Paul, man, awesome. Well, back then it was, Paul, we don't like you in the first century. 
People were always questioning his apostleship. He had a lot of enemies and a lot of detractors. And so Paul knew that if he starts baptizing a lot of people, his enemies would start accusing him of baptizing people in his own name, of starting his own thing. So Paul said, I'm going to leave the baptisms up to another pastor or somebody else so I'm never misunderstood. And so Paul, in this passage, is saying this. It's not about me. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter. It's about Jesus. That leads you to your next point. And this point right here is going to help save a lot of you of a lot of heartache in the future. We have got to keep our eyes on Jesus and not human personalities. So important. Do you know how many times G, uh, Paul mentions the name Jesus Christ, our Lord? you know how many times he mentions the name Christ in the first 10 verses? 10 times. Who do you think Paul was all about? Himself? You think he was about Apollos? You think he was about Peter? No, he was about the only one who really matters, and that's Jesus Christ. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this is a tendency of our flesh. We've got to guard against it. We cannot polarize ourselves around certain personalities in the church and then say, I follow this man or I follow this woman. I'm a Calvinist. I'm Arminian. I'm a Wesleyan. I follow John Piper. I follow Chuck Swindoll. I follow Chuck Smith. Okay, my question for people like that is, do you really want to be known as a Calvinist or a follower of, of, of Jacob, um, um, the, the Arminians? Do you really want to be known as a Calvinist or an Arminian before you're known as a follower of Jesus Christ? And that's what I hear a lot in the church. You get to know somebody, and the first thing they say about their theological position, I'm a Calvinist, I'm Arminian. Well, guess what? I follow Jesus. I'm not into all that. Should we really follow men? How many mega church pastors have fallen in the last 20 years, and how many people have been devastated and their faith shaken to the core because their eyes are on men and not on Christ? not about men. And if you focus on a man, here's what's going to happen. That man's going to disappoint you, but Christ will never disappoint you. We should give it up for the Lord right now. He'll never disappoint you. So don't look to me, right? Don't ever put me on a pedestal. Do not look to me. Do not put me on a pedestal. I'm just a normal guy. When you see somebody that you have a lot of respect for in the church, right, some visiting pastor or some other pastor or whatever, don't act like the little teenagers on American Idol. Oh, look, look, oh, run up to them. Sign my Bible, sign my Bible. What are you doing? It's not, not about them. It's about Jesus. They're just servants of the Lord. And they have a seat on the same throne once a day, just like you and I on that porcelain throne. They do the same thing we do. They're flesh and blood. And don't look to me. Don't put me on a pedestal because I will let you down. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. You know what you can do for me? You can pray for me. 
right? I need your prayers. Why? Because I really hope and pray that by God's grace, I'm gonna make it to the end of my last breath crossing the finish line, faithful to Christ, faithful to my wife, faithful to my kids, faithful to my church. But I'll never get there without the grace of God and without your prayers. Pray for me, right? That's what I'm asking for. Don't look to me. Don't follow me. Don't say, well, Pastor Mike says this. No, what does the Bible say? I'm of a Paul, Paulos, Peter, Cephas. No, we need to be of Jesus Christ. So the way we're going to begin to wrap this message up is we're going to look back at verse 2. We're talking about unity. So look at verse 2. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So he's speaking to the local church. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, now, here's the part we want to hone in on. With, what's the next word? All. Oh, the church, ladies and gentlemen, is a lot larger than the church of Corinth or any local church. With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus, that's the man, Christ, that's his ministry, he's the Messiah, our Lord, that's his divinity, he is God both theirs, their God, and our, our God. Paul's trying to get it through the heads of these Corinthians that the church is a lot larger than your little local assembly. We believe in the universal church. That leads you to your next point. If you're taking notes, we believe in the big C church. If you ever leave poor St. Lucie and you move to another town, you go to a local church, and the pastor stands up and tries to tell you that his is the only church. I have one word of advice for you. Run. Run. Ladies and gentlemen, we're just one little dot in a big, vast world that's filled with millions of brothers and sisters in Christ who are calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, and we're all part of the same family. Don't have that elitist mentality or we're better than them or whatever else. And so as we begin to wind down, we're done in 1 Corinthians. Let's go to Ephesians 4 and let's talk about what can we be united around. Paul tells us in the word of God. What can, be we, what can we be united around? There's seven things. We covered this when we went through the book of Ephesus, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we're going to go through it and remind all of ourselves, what does unity mean? All right, verse four, Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in, the, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. So there's seven things. The Apostle Paul says all Christians all across the world, no matter what local church you belong to, seven things we can all unite around. First of all, he says there's one body. What does that mean? He's talking about the church. Okay, so which church? Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Lutheran, Episcopal, Presbyterian, 
Baptist, Methodist, Church of God, Assembly of God, Calvary Chapel? No. Everybody please say no, right? No. All those groups came later in history after Paul wrote this. Paul wasn't referring to any of these groups. He was, re he was referring to the universal church of which all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are part of. One body, one spirit. Who's that? The Holy Spirit. By the way, please do not disrespect the Holy Spirit and call him an it. Oh, it filled me today. Or it, you know, overwhelmed me today. He's not an it. He's a person, capital P. He's the third person of the Trinity. One God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Trinity, by the way, is taught over and over in the New Testament. It's taught right here in verses four, five, and six. So the Holy Spirit, one body, one spirit, and then he says one hope. What's that? That's heaven. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. How many of you guys, don't raise your hands, don't answer out loud. How many of you right now, your hearts are troubled? Could it be because you're focusing so much on this life with its problems and its issues? If I were, I'm going to borrow an illustration from Francis Chan, but if I were to take a, a rope that maybe stretches out 100 miles and I were to wrap a piece of duct tape around just the end of that rope and then throw that rope out 100 miles, you need to know that your life right now on earth is in just that piece of duct tape. You're only here for a little while, but you're gonna be living on the rope forever. But you and I get fo so focused on the duct tape and we never even think about heaven, so we're not even excited about heaven, and so we're not being encouraged by our hope, our sure hope. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That should get us excited that we're not living just in the tape. We're gonna live forever and ever and ever with Jesus. Are you excited about that? Are you really excited about that? Now, I can help you get excited about that. It's what I've been doing for about the last six months. Most nights before I go to bed, I read a little bit in the book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. It's a big book, but don't let the thickness of it intimidate you because he doesn't write like, you know, um, high-minded theologians that you gotta, you know, like take a dictionary when you read them. He just keeps the cookies on the bottom shelf. And I, a little bit, before I go to bed, I'll read about heaven, right? And I get so excited in some of the stuff that I'm reading. And I, I, I just think, man, maybe tonight's the night. I'm not gonna hear the alarm clock. I'm gonna hear the trumpet of the Lord and go home to be with him. That's Heaven by Randy Alcorn. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord Jesus Christ. This is it right here. This is what we unite around. One Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you gotta get this. It's the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of people's imaginations. It's not the Jesus of Mormonism. It's not the Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses. 
Why? Because they do not believe what the Bible teaches about the true Jesus. What does the Bible teach about the true Jesus? He's God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He taught. He did miracles. He died a substitutionary death. He rose again the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the eternal, uncreated, holy, sovereign God. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And that's what we unite around. That's what separates true Christians from cults. That's what separates true Christians from from everybody else on the planet, all other religions. I sat recently in a mosque. You said, what are you doing there? It was part of something that my daughter had to do for school. And I sat in the mosque with all these Muslim worshipers. My heart broke because the first five minutes of the cleric's sermon was he denounced the Trinity. He denounced the divinity of Jesus Christ. It's a false religion. Christianity, right? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. And that's true Christianity. What's it based on? It's based on the apostles' doctrine. Who are the apostles? Peter, James, John, Matthew, later on Paul, those guys who are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you know that Muslims do not even believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because Muslims do not believe that Jesus died on the cross? Ladies and gentlemen, we got to differentiate the truth from a lie. And we got to stand for the truth. This is what we unite around. Whether we lose our heads or not, this is what we unite around. The Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles' doctrine. And and here's here's when you know if you really believe this or not, when they come for you. (laughs) Then you'll know. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What is baptism? Biblical baptism. It's a believers. Everybody say believers. Immersion in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. I'm going to see how many people are really listening right now. Who's the them? Help me out. I'm so thankful. Three people. Listen again. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. The them are disciples. What's a disciple? Someone who's put their trust in Jesus, who's following Jesus. Can a baby put their trust in Jesus and follow Jesus? No. But a big section of the church has reversed the order, and they baptize first, and then they believe. It's in the wrong order. As I said Um, Just recently, uh, what does the Bible teach? In Acts chapter 2, right, day of Pentecost, they believed, were saved, then they were baptized. In Acts chapter 8, they're in Syria. Um, Philip preaches, they believe, they're saved, then they're baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, Philip preaches, he believes, he's saved, then he's baptized. You go to Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul. 
He believes, he's saved, then he gets baptized. Chapter 10, Cornelius and his household, they believe, they're saved, then it says they got baptized. Acts chapter 16, Lydia and her household, she believes, they're saved, then they get baptized. Philippian jailer, Acts chapter 16, what must I do to be saved? Get baptized. Is that what Paul said to him? No, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your house. He believed and he got saved and then he got baptized over and over and over again. That's the order. That's why we believe in believers' baptism. And yesterday, we baptized 29 people here at Calvary and we rejoice and we thank God for that. It's an awesome thing. And then finally, he says, one God. Who's that? It's our Father, the holy, uncreated, eternal, sovereign God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He is the Lord. He's our God. Now, the only way you can approach him, how many of you guys know you just can't walk into God's presence? If you want to be a crispy critter, a French fry, just go walk into God's presence. That's why I always tell you guys, man, make sure you're praying before you come to church, before you come worship. Don't just come walking in the, the worship center to worship the uncreated the universe. You don't go into his presence casually. There's only one way you get to the Father. That's through the Son and through the blood of the Son. Because if you try to go to the Father in your sin, you will be consumed because our God is a consuming fire. But if you go through the blood of Jesus Christ, he is your Abba Daddy. He gives you a big old hug because our God is a God of grace. These are the seven things all Christians all around the world, this is what we unite around. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, and isn't it great that we can have unity here at Calvary without having uniformity? Aren't you glad that our church is so diverse? Right? You look around, you see Caucasian people, African-American people, Latino people, Asian people, people from all different kinds of races and ethnicities. You look around, you see people of all ages, children, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged people, older people. Please notice I didn't say old people. I said older, because I respect you. We're made up of people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, poor, rich, middle class. We're made up of people from all political persuasions. We have conservatives politically, we have moderates, we have liberals. If you're liberal, I'll pray for you. I'm kidding, no, take that out. We love you if you're liberal politically, all right. We, we have people here from all, love all different NFL teams. Some of you are Dolphin fans, some of you are Steeler fans, some of you are Cowboy fans. The spiritual elite among us are Tampa Bay Buccaneer fans. We come in here with all different kind of clothes. Some of you guys wear suits and ties. Some of you come in with t-shirts and jeans. Some of you come in with shorts and flip-flops. Who cares? God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. Some of you have long hair, some of you have short hair, some of you have tattoos, some of you have piercings. Praise the Lord. 
You know what we can unite around? Our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is our hero and he is our God. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.